1: Don't want to feel sexier and more confident in their own bodies. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Lori Watson, who is a sexologist. And in our podcast today, she talks about some key things for you to know in order to feel sexier and more comfortable in your own skin. Just as a note, today's episode is not super safe for little ears, so be sure that if you're at work, maybe you put in your headphones. If you're around your kids, do the same. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. I am joined by Dr. Lori Watson today, who I have followed over the past couple of years. She has an amazing podcast that we will refer to at the end, but it's called Foreplay, which is such a great way to just hear her take on sex and her co-hosts that she has with her as well. But she also, I had the great experience of meeting her this past year. My husband and I went to a marriage and sex conference that she did, and it was just Absolutely fantastic. Oh. Dr. Watson, thank you so much for joining thank us on you. the show today.
0: Thank you for that intro. Lovely. Yes, oh, that's a really lovely. fun retreat that we've done. And yeah. thank you so much. I'm still doing the podcast, having mm-hmm. fun with that.
1: I will say, you know, it was for, a, I've been married 10 years, We just about 10 years. And so in the past, you know, several years, it has it is difficult to find. It was difficult for me to find anywhere to go to get good insight on what to do with sex. Like there's a lot of places you could go and I just felt dirty or gross and none of it was really based in science or research or mm-hmm. or what worked. And so when I came ap- across your podcast, I thought this woman knows what she's talking about. She has experience in it. The things that she recommends, you know, I feel good about. It doesn't make me feel gross or dirty or anything. And it was just a really great place for me to find encouragement, but also find things that work. And you're not, you know, you're pretty blunt in the things that you talk about, but it's needed. It's so needed. You serve such a great niche and market.
0: Oh, thank you so much. You know, our title is Foreplay Radio and Sex and Couples Therapy. And, you know, I it is kind of a salacious sounding title. I, I will tell you a funny story. The reason it's titled that way, we actually work from attachment theory, which is the most researched scientific theory uh, on how people connect, stay connected. And we also take that viewpoint from the sexual relationship. But the funny story is, I was asked by the radio, a local radio station to do a half an hour segment before the basketball and football games. And so we thought, you know, <laughs> how perfect is the name foreplay, you know, about seven right. before the game. And so then that kind of just stuck. So uh, I have had a little resistance, especially from my female listeners. It's like, oh, foreplay, that sounds like, you know, it's something that is going to be uh, like you said, it, it'll It'll be just erotica and Uh it it won't be something that's informational, but we're really two therapists. My co-therapist, George Fowler is truly a worldwide couples therapist and trainer. And um, we try really hard to base our podcast in research and Uh is a conversation as a man and a woman about our individual experiences and as professionals.
1: Dr. Watson, tell our listeners a little bit more about your experience. You just touched on it a bit, but your experience, what your past is in and tell us more about your PhD that you have or your, tell us more about your doctorate.
0: Okay, good. Yes. I have a doctorate in sexology and uh, I'm a a marriage family therapist. You know, I've, I've been doing this for goodness, 30 years. And I really started in the um direction of sex therapy because I taught a premarital class for about seven years when I was an early clinician, and all of the young couples came back for sex therapy. And I was like, wow, I mean, this is huh. this is not what I expected. You know, I expected uh-huh. to be honeymooners and having great sex. But it turns out that, you know, our sexual life is something that needs direct intervention. So many of us believe. It should just come naturally. You know, if we loved each other, right?
1: That's what the movies say.
0: I think more and more what I've realized as a married person and as a therapist and as a sex therapist and now as a sexologist, you know, I realize that we need work in both areas to create sexual satisfaction. We need work in our intimate emotional connection and we need work on our physical sexual connection both of those um, need to have direct intervention in order for us to have real satisfaction. And we we think that we should know how to do this. And so many people don't. I mean, so many people, even who are having sex, have not really learned all the ins and outs, and they haven't had a conversation that's easy and flowing with their partner. I I would say 95% of everybody's making love, but they're not necessarily talking about their experience in ways that add to the experience. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it's just an awkward conversation. Uh, We don't have language necessarily to match what we experience. I mean, trying to describe an orgasm, try to describe, um, you know, just where you need to be touched and how you need to be touched or try to describe... The emotions that you experience when you're with your loved one. I mean, these are really Mm
1: -hmm.
0: difficult, vulnerable. And I think we, even with the person we love the most, you know, we can guard ourselves from that level of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So
1: when you say that we have to have intervention or it's best to have that physical intervention and then the emotional intervention, I think you used sexual for one of those. But what does that look like? Does it start from, Within me first? Does it start in the relationship?
0: How does that work? I, that's a great question. I think that certainly we have to know our sexual response. You know, what do we like? How do we like to be touched? And be willing to communicate that. I think an intervention to me is um, working on it. You know, and in some ways that can be kind of a downer. It's like, oh, you know, we didn't think we were going to have to work on sex. That sounds kind of uh, boring. But actually working on sex creates an optimal experience. And so I think the first place um, certainly is to know, you know, your turn ons and your turn offs, Um, both emotionally, what turns you on, what turns you on by sight and touch and sound and smell and what turns you off and be able to maybe start there to communicate. You know, these are the things that get me in the mood that make me feel desire And maybe if you're uh, a sexual pursuer, is what we call them people who really have an impetus towards sex. They feel connection easily through their body and through the sexual experience. Uh, Maybe this sounds like excitement and fun to tell their partner this. But if you're a sexual withdrawer, and that's usually a person who may like sex, but um, can feel it as a very overwhelming experience, can feel anxious about the experience, really wants to please their partner and has not necessarily taken the time to think about, gosh, what pleases me? I'm just, I'm just happy if my partner's happy, right? They don't necessarily know their body or know their experience or even think about it that way. So for that type of person, what I'm suggesting is really a more difficult assignment, mm-hmm.
1: which is to realize that about yourself.
0: Yeah. Awakenloveandsex.com and we have a quiz that defines kind of which side you're on if you're a sexual withdrawer or a sexual mm-hmm. pursuer also if you're an emotional pursuer or emotional those withdrawer. Can be different because they can be different they can mm-hmm. be opposite so the emotional attachment cycle is separate from the sexual attachment cycle but both of them influence each other So how we feel sexually, how connected we feel often impacts how emotionally we feel connected. And likewise, we often, you know, feel emotions and that emotional connection can really smooth the way into sex sometimes. And it's not just women, although women more frequently are emotional pursuers and sexual withdrawers. Uh, And men are often sexual pursuers and emotional withdrawers, not all the time, but that crisscross can be really confusing and we can make up a lot about our partner if that's the way it is. Um, You know, I hear women all the time who say, you know, but I need I have to have emotional connection in order to be sexual. And I, I am a woman. I really understand that as a preference. But if you're partnered with and married to someone who needs sexual connection first in order to feel safe emotionally, then you have to ask yourself, do I have to have emotional connection first every single time? Or can I give sometimes to my partner, give them a sexual experience and lovemaking? Because I know and I love them. And I want them to feel safe. I know that they will feel safer to open up to me emotionally once we've been sexual. So when we know our own style, our attachment style and our sexual style, and we know our partner's attachment style uh, and sexual style, we can give to each other in ways that really optimize our ultimate connection. Mm -hmm.
1: And how do you begin that conversation? If you're the spouse who isn't happy in your sexual relationship, either way, maybe you feel like you're being, you know, lured into it too much and you're not getting enough of what you want emotionally or the opposite where you're wanting more sex and your partner isn't. How do you even address that with them? Because it's, it is a difficult conversation.
0: It is such a difficult conversation. We actually just did a podcast. that's called, let's talk about sex, baby. And and that one was we modeled how to introduce this topic, how to be soft um, when you bring up the subject and kind of encourage your partner to feel so safe. I think part of it is knowing that your partner may not feel safe about this conversation and trying to make it as safe as possible for them. So I would say if you have something that you would like changed – Um, first of all, tell your partner all the things that are going well in the sex life. You know what? I love your body. I feel so great when our skin is touching each other. I love to make love to you. I think you're beautiful. I think you're so sexy. Um, I would love to talk to you about more of this. How about we have a conversation together On Saturday night, we'll get some wine, we'll sit in the jacuzzi, or we'll get some wine and we'll sit by the fire and just talk about it. I want to know your mind, like what is exciting to you? And then in that conversation, if you're the sexual pursuer, you have to be very, very, very careful to hang on to your anxiety about, wow, my partner's not saying very much, or they're not giving me enough information, or they think it's all just great and I don't, like all of those anxieties that come up in us and just make it a safe conversation to hear your partner. And maybe your partner does say things like, well, I I don't really think anything needs to be changed. It's fine the way it is. And it's like, okay, I love that. I love that you're feeling satisfied. Can you tell me maybe, you know, how you turn on, What, what are the things that I do that help you or is there anything that I do? Or is it kind of just, you feel in the mood. And and so you have to work around somebody who is a little anxious about talking about it and continue to encourage them and to make it safe without any criticism, especially on that one conversation. That first conversation has to be the safest conversation in the world. Because otherwise more won't happen. Otherwise there won't be right. a second conversation. Your partner, especially if they're a sexual mm-hmm. withdrawer, uh, they're going to be shut down. And you know, sometimes, sexual withdrawals, I will say, I call them whispers. Um, Part of the reason that they have withdrawn from the sexual relationship is they've told their partner what they like and their partner hasn't heard it or hasn't remembered it. And so they're easily discouraged and they give up and they say, you know, I, um, gosh, I told my partner that I like to be touched in this really specific way and you know, they get going and they just don't do that or they move too fast or they touch me too directly too soon or they think it's all about this and it's not. And so that sexual withdrawal is really in some ways kind of fragile. They think to themselves, I did tell you. And when their partner who's the sexual pursuer continues to ask them, what do you like? What do you like? What do you like? Or tell me about your sexual experience. They're like, I did and you didn't care enough about it to remember. So they tell them themselves something about the experience that they're having with their partner. They, they might say to themselves, gosh, I'm being questioned, but I've already said this. And therefore that means you didn't care enough about me to remember. Why should I tell Mm -hmm. you twice? And I would just encourage that person to say, you know what, go again try again. This is such an important part of your life. And sex, you know, we get caught up in a lot of different things when sex is happening. Arousal kind of can obscure our memories. And we can be so into our body that we, you know, forget for a minute, you know, what our partner has told us. And so I would say, please go again. Please have that conversation. It's so important to your future long-term happiness.
1: It, yes. What happens in a relationship when couples stop engaging
0: sexually? Okay. This is a scary stat, Kimberly, but it's a third of couples who've been married for two years actually become sexless, And that means that they're having sex less than 10 times a year. So sexlessness is less than after, once two a month. Or, after two wow. years of marriage, after two years of marriage, Or they are low sexed, which means less than every other week. And I believe the reason is not because of familiarity. It's not because we know each other so well. It's because of this power struggle between us, between the pursuer and the distancer or the pursuer and the withdrawer. That one person often feels the need for more connection, more closeness, more time together, more talking. And the other person feels suffocated by that and feels the need for space and distance and time away and time to pursue their own purpose and their own hobbies. And this creates a real cyclical kind of struggle. One person, they both actually need each other, but the way the power struggle manifests is one person chases and the other backs up. The person who's backing up feels suffocated And the person who's pursuing feels like abandoned, like I'm never going to get my needs met. I'm being deprived in this marriage. And as we've talked about, this may be reversed in the sexual cycle. You know, perhaps the traditional one that the man is really involved in his work. He's gotten married. You know, maybe they've got one and a half kids along the way. And he's like, I got to provide for my family and really finds intensity in life. In his career and in his work. And the woman perhaps, and you know, we're all working these days as a woman, I I have a full time career, but, but frequently the woman is still socialized to find her intensity in life in the relationship. So she's like, you're so preoccupied all the time. All you do is think about work, you know, you never put your darn phone down. And, um, And he's like, you're always nagging me. I'm never good enough for you. Um, You feel like, I feel like I'm a failure to you. You know, I'm already struggling to provide and gosh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not enough for you. No matter what I do, it's never enough. And that struggle is ubiquitous to every Mm. couple within that struggle. We get alienated from each other emotionally. Sex definitely shuts down if there's emotional alienation. And we also do that same struggle sexually. You know, one person says, I want more from you. I need more from you. I need more, not just frequency, but I need more intensity, more eroticism. I want to feel your lack of inhibition and your freedom with me and your desire for me and your desire for this experience. And the other person's like, man, you just demand too much. You're wanting something from me that I don't feel no matter what I give you, I give you it this morning and then you want it in the evening, you know, and it's just this tension and this struggle. And that's what shuts Mm -hmm. us down. It's the negative cycle. Uh, I work from a theory called emotionally focused theory. It's applied attachment theory. And any of you needing counselors around the world, frankly, at this point, I would encourage you to seek out an emotionally focused therapist. It's, um, a theory, an application of attachment theory, designed by Sue Johnson, who's really brilliant, and that is, they understand this negative cycle and they understand how to heal mm-hmm. this cycle,
1: because it it is, it's that thing
0: you can just get in it and it can feel like you can't get out of it. Right, the negative cycle snatches intimacy away from the couple, and and the way through is really to begin mm-hmm. to see that I'm not against you and you're not against me, but this cycle is robbing us. The good news is that there is really a way out of the negative cycle. And that is through vulnerability and curiosity. And when we start to tell our partner about our real feelings, then we're no longer caught in the negative cycle. And my real feeling is not, you're suffocating me. I feel like you're suffocating. My real feeling is, you know, I feel like I'm not good enough for you. I'm afraid that you don't find me sexy enough and you'll leave me. I'm afraid that I won't be the person that you really need from me and, and we'll grow cold together. You know, those are really deep emotions. And when our partner hears about our fears and our vulnerabilities and our, um, our anxious feelings, oftentimes it just sucks them right to us. You know, they can come close to that. It's not the blaming, angry, defensive posture that separates us. It's like our partner is telling us truly what's going on inside them and that helps us come close Mm -hmm. to them.
1: So what if a couple is doing this work, they're working through it, but one person in that couple just has such a negative thought of themselves that that's where they're stuck.
0: Okay. So are we talking about the sexual cycle? Yes.
1: So let's say, you know, I just, I don't feel sexy. I, you know, my husband might tell me, I think you're beautiful. I think you're great. All this stuff. But you know, when I look in the mirror, it's like, "Mm -mm." or I am inhibited where I'm like, I, I don't like, there's things I want to do, but I am scared to do them because of me. Even if my husband's given me permission or whatever, I'm like, how do you, so how do, how do you work on, at what point does the individual have to say, there's some things I have to do apart from my relationship, because our relationship is being worked on, you know, my spouse
0: is being open, um, but I'm stuck. Right. And I, I'd like to take that in two parts, because I think they are two separate issues. The first thing that you just talked about is a person's body yeah. self-esteem, right? and our body self esteem is really integral to the sexual experience. How we feel about our body, its capabilities, its appearance is so important. And certainly these days, men and women are, um, there's an onslaught in the media about they're not good enough, right? That they don't look good enough. I mean, I think this has been going on for many, many years for women and uh, the media has now caught up and is telling men the same thing. You know, you're not muscular enough. You don't have a flat enough abs and we can't see your abs. And, you know, so therefore you're not sexy. And of course, the the media really wants us to buy product. Um, the purpose of the beauty and fashion industry in part is to make us feel inadequate so that we will buy, buy, buy. So we have this influence. Uh, that is against us. You know, I think about uh, my grandmother's generation. My grandmother immigrated to the United States from Norway and had never seen a glossy magazine. She did not go to the movies. So the only women that she was comparing herself to were the women in her very small town. You know, she was basically comparing herself to... All the other average women, and not to superstars, right? Women today, we compare ourselves to actors and actresses, and um, the media, the the fashion high fashion models. Um, we tell ourselves a lot about our weight. Weight is the number one body issue that women struggle with, um, to feel good about themselves. And it really is a result, I think of the media, but I think what you're talking about is what do I do when I know I have a poor body self-esteem? How in the world can I get over Mm -hmm. that? I think it's, it is, you know, just like, um, all the eating disorder therapists say is it begins with some level of self-acceptance. Um, I think that underneath the the voice that is so critical is a need. You know, I I often challenge women. I'm working with a woman right now who has a super critical voice about her body. She is one of the most beautiful women I've ever known in person. She's tall, lithe, beautiful, you know, just has lovely limbs, has just a, a lovely figure. And she has this ever constant voice that tells her, you're gross, mm. you're gross, you're gross, you're gross. It It's really full of hatred and scathing. And so underneath this, I think is not just necessarily something about the body. I think in her case, um, her childhood traumas, which were not not severe. It wasn't like she had an alcoholic parent or was molested, but they, it was chronic. Her parents fought all the time and they eventually divorced. I mean, there was just constant kind of, uh, Mm -hmm. micro trauma. And I think that as a child, she incorporated that in a way that somehow or another she believed she caused it. And it, it's weird, but trauma lodges in the body. And so the way it manifests is in this voice, this critical voice about sort of whipping herself um, and telling herself she was no good. And then, of course, as she became an adolescent, that essentially got tinged with eroticism, and she believed that she was no good as a sexual being. So I think that this voice underneath that's so critical can have many causes. It's not necessarily... Anything to do with the body, which is uh-huh. ironic. It's just like when we're dreaming and we have a sex dream. I mean, that can be very exciting, but it may have nothing to do with sex. And likewise, a dream that seems innocuous may have everything to do with our sex life and may help us learn about ourselves. Uh-huh. So I think that what you're talking about is, is there a way to get underneath the criticism, the self-criticism and heal it? And I think, yes, but I think it's multidimensional. Um, that it could be just about what we tell ourselves about our body, what we believe from the media. And I think it could be our personal history. You know, what did we learn when we first started menstruating? What did we learn when we were developing? What did our parents say about our bodies? Did we have parents who touched us and were affectionate? Because then then we we take in that our body is acceptable and good? Or did we come from families that really didn't touch very much? So if we come from a family that didn't touch very much, we might have a lot of self-rejection about our bodies, even though, and then once we're in a sexual relationship, we don't have acceptance. We don't let ourselves hunger for touch because when we were children, we hungered for touch so much, so painfully that never came that we made a vow when we were children that said, I will never hunger for that again. I will never allow myself to hunger for touch, but we misconstrue those things. And then people grow up and they can hate their body because their body represents longing and unfulfilled longing is so painful that then we look at ourselves and we say, you don't deserve being touched. You're ugly. You're fat. You have cellulite. You you're not perfect. And we, we continue this scathing conversation to keep ourselves from being hungry again for touch. So that's one thing. I said a lot there. Um, what was the second part that we were talking about? It was the body image and and then then literal sexual. Yes,
1: that was the other one.
0: Okay, well, Kimberly, I was looking online. I, I use the State Library all the mm-hmm. time to research. And one of the things, you are a woman, so I'm going to take it from that angle. Um, it talked about that women in general in the culture are taught to be sexually submissive. And if it's congruent and, you know, they really get turned on by a more dominant male partner. And what I'm talking about in terms of dominance is a man who initiates, who has a lot of desire and initiates sexual contact. That's that's what I'm referring to when I say dominant and that that's her turn on as a sexually more submissive being, that can work. But one of the problems with it is that women are not socialized to speak up about their own desires or to take the more dominant position some of the time. And sometimes they have their own ideas about what will feel good, what will turn them on, and they don't do it because it's culturally just opposite of what they think they should do. And so the inhibition, I think, particularly for women is, um, you know, I don't see myself as an action taker. I don't see myself having agency. I'm not supposed to know what turns me on. I'm not supposed to know, have these creative ideas. And so they don't tell their partner. And I got to say, there's a lot of men out there who are more um, interested in a mutual experience of dominance that they want their partner to come toward them to tell them that they're sexy it will make them feel desired it will be it will energize the sex life if their female partner would come forward and say hey i got a great idea something crazy to do tonight i mean that would be so exciting but i think women are up against a cultural ideal that says they're not supposed to have these ideas hmm. and so that inhibits us do you
1: see in any of oh, the people or clients you've worked with where the man is more sexually inhibited.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Really? So I would say 20% of my practice is with women who are sexual pursuers and men who are sexual withdrawers. And, um, you know, many times for heaven knows many reasons, let's say it's not physiological. So if a man has low testosterone, mm-hmm. He's going to be um, more sexually withdrawn because he doesn't have the body push that towards sexuality but let's say he has adequate testosterone but personality wise for whatever reason he doesn't allow himself to sort of get in touch with what I call the caveman the inner part that's the caveman and you know he feels maybe he grew up and he he heard from his parents that you know sex um wanting a woman is sexually denigrating to a woman. And he incorporated that as a message. And so he's kind of inhibited in his initiation, or maybe he felt like he grew up and he heard that the sexual caveman inside is dirty and bad and hurtful. And so to be a good guy, you know, he kind of put that aside. Maybe he can masturbate and have fantasies there, But he can't, in a relationship, uh, use and access that really strong sexual part to uh, invigorate the sexual life. So, I mean, definitely men are often shut down as well. I mean, sometimes, certainly, there's many, many reasons. Sometimes trauma shuts down men, sexual trauma. Other physical trauma can shut down men. PTSD, we have... A huge problem with re- returning mm-hmm. soldiers uh, when they've been in combat. I mean, I think 70% of them have PTSD. And PTSD is a state of mind where you have to be um, vigilant at all times. But to be sexual, we have to be relaxed. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes, you know, men and women who struggle with PTSD, military men and women have real trouble getting in touch again with their soft sexual side, because it requires a vulnerability that is truly not safe. You know, that is dangerous, and it's dangerous to their survival and switching off one hat and then becoming the lover in the bedroom to that hat, you know, just feels impossible to them.
1: Mm-hmm. I can... Definitely see that, and then even in terms of thinking about those couples when they've been apart, but then they they're coming back together, like in the military, and then that's what you're wanting because you haven't had sex for a year, six months, however long it is, and I can just see that compounding on top of everything. I
0: I hope some of your listeners are hearing you say that because you are absolutely right that reunification is a huge disappointment and and it becomes almost a micro trauma to the couple. You know, the person at home longing to be reunited sexually and frankly, the returning soldier longing for sexual um, connection again with their partner, but they find they can't do that because it requires too much softness, too much, you know, putting aside the danger of what they've learned is protective for their very survival. So you are absolutely right. And the military needs us. They need us to help them with this kind of information. Absolutely. Well, Lori, what are the things that when you have people come in
1: and maybe let's say it's their first, second session with you, it's still rather, rather new. And granted, I don't know how you do your thing. (laughs) So I'm assuming a lot of things right here. But what are some things you would tell a man and a woman of, okay, like go home and start doing these things to start feeling better, to start working towards these goals you have of wanting to have a better sex life, feel better about yourself. What are some of those takeaways you would give to them?
0: Well, I think you mentioned something that a lot of people have questions about. What is sex therapy? And I'll just briefly say that sex therapy is talk therapy. Um, We don't do any disrobing. There's no nudity. There's no sexual touching. It's all discussion. And we often talk about, first of all, you know, what's the problem? Tell me about what's happening, uh, why you've come to see me kind of what's going on. We get to know each other a little bit. We might talk through some sexual history. What were their relationships like? What was their family like growing up? What were the messages? And then we start working on the problem. And again, the most organized way to think about this is from the cycle perspective. You know, who is the pursuer, who is the distancer or the withdrawer, and what is their move? So, what we do is we break down their particular cycle. Um, in therapy, it's a little different than teaching. In therapy, I want to. It's very individualized. Um, so we we want to take uh, the partner who is the pursuer and help them know, okay, what do I feel? What do I tell myself when I get rejected? Let's say, what, do I, what does that say to me about me? Um, where do I feel that in my body? And then what do I do next? And so let's say the partner comes to, you, well, you know, I feel so rejected. I, I feel this pit in my stomach. I tell myself that my partner doesn't want me. And what do I do? I get angry. What all pursuers do, right? Because anger is our hope about getting through to our partner. And if I'm louder and stronger, maybe my partner Mm -hmm. will hear me. And then we go to the withdrawing partner. And what do you do? What do you feel when your partner comes at you with this angry voice? It's like, oh, my God, I'm a deer in the headlight. I feel frozen. I feel frightened. I feel like I'm in trouble. I feel like I failed. I feel that tense place in my neck, right? I get the stiff neck to withstand the assault that's coming. I tell myself I'm no good. And what do I do? I shut down. I stop talking. I go into the other room. I just blow my partner off because there's no way through this, right? So that's what we do in therapy. And in terms of teaching people is I want to teach the sexual pursuer kind of what the, what are better moves to do than attack or criticize. And I want to teach the sexual withdrawer, what are better moves to do than Mm -hmm. withdrawing. And so the sexual withdrawer, I'm going to start there because I really want that person, if at all possible to be brave and to come forward first. So one of the things you talked about is what can they do for themselves? And I want them to know their body. I want know their body response. I frankly want them to masturbate. And I, I don't know what your stance is on masturbation, but this is a prescription. You know, I want them to know how they respond, um, how they kind of get close to orgasm, what moves them over the edge so that they can eventually, not the very next day perhaps, but eventually communicate that mm-hmm. to their partner. I want them to figure out what their blocks and their triggers are. So, Where in the sexual relationship do they get blocked? Is it body self-esteem? Is it um, this message from their parent that maybe said, you know, sex is dirty? Or maybe they are of a faith tradition that says, you know, you shouldn't do this before marriage. And they did. And so they beat themselves up with guilt. You know, what are the blocks? that keep them from really fully enjoying and inhabiting their body. So that's their task. And then for the sexual pursuer, their tasks are to first learn to compliment after every sexual encounter and then close their mouth. One compliment, close your mouth. So that tell your partner that was wonderful. I enjoyed it. Done. Period don't say, when can we do it again? Or, you know, what could I have done better to make it even better from you? Because ironically those questions, well, I'm, I'm a sexual pursuer. I get it. I get the desire to enhance the sexual experience, but the sexual withdrawer hears those questions after they've been sexually vulnerable as criticism. I didn't do it good enough. We just uh... had this amazing experience. And, You're wanting to know more. That means it wasn't good enough. So what we want to do is send a message to our sexual withdrawers that it was beautiful. It was perfect. I enjoyed it. Done. So, so those are their first moves that I want them to make is the sexual withdrawer to explore themselves, know their body, know their blocks and triggers and the sexual pursuer to really focus on giving positive feedback little bit by little bit to their sexual withdrawing partner, because it's, I don't know if you've ever heard the theory in teaching about shaping that when a child's learning, we want to supply a lot of encouragement every Mm -hmm. step of the way. We don't want to say, gosh, you know, on this, on this math homework, you got seven, you you got three wrong. We want to say, look at how much you're learning. You got seven, Mm -hmm. right? You and Mm I Together, we'll work on the three that didn't seem to work out right. And we'll learn it together, honey. We, we just supply that enthusiasm and that grace that encourages a child to want to try again, to, to go further. And that's really what we need to do with sexual withdrawers because they experience inhibition in their body. They experience blocks. So we want to encourage every step that they make and we want to notice it. This is one of the big things, sexual withdrawers say, but I did initiate. I initiated last month and it was no big deal to you. And the sexual pursuer says, yeah, because you never Mm. initiated. Right. Encouraging it, noting it and saying, you know what? You made me feel so loved when you initiated. It just felt so reassuring to me and really giving that person the credit that that brave, courageous step took. You know, I think the the sexual pursuer is so starving. They're like, ah, oh, drop in the bucket. You know, that's just a drop in the bucket. And and that mentality of, is it a drop in the bucket? This is what I tell sexual pursuers: you can count your partner's effort as a drop in the bucket, or you can count it as rain on the oh. field. When we look at our partner's efforts, however small they may be, as rain on the field. It will water the crops that are baby crops that are growing rather than the debt that they owe us for all the things they haven't done. We want to see their efforts as watering what is growing between us. Does that make sense? That's
1: so good. That's the
0: flip in that. Just the,
1: the change in perspective of it is beautiful because really what you have both people doing is both of them in a way are working on themselves. The sexual pursuer is, is saying, how can I evaluate the way I'm coming across to this person and how can I do it more, more enthusiastically, more optimistically in a safer space for them while the sexual withdrawer is figuring themselves out and learning to be comfortable in themselves.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's, that's amazing. That's beautiful. I, love hearing you speak. Even when I heard you at the conference back in November, it just flowed so well for you. I mean, you clearly know what you're talking about. You've had experience with, you know, who knows how many hundreds or thousands of couples over 20, 30 years. And you can tell that, you know, so where can our audience follow you, find you and learn more about what
0: you do? Oh, thank you so much. So obviously my podcast, Radio. Couples and sex therapy. I think I turned it around the last time I said it, but we are on iTunes. We are anywhere you find podcasts. Um, I'm obviously I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You know, foreplay and Lori Watson couples therapist is another Facebook page. I have. I have two Facebook pages. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Foreplay Radio is on Instagram. So, um, and this right now we are doing kind of position of the day. <laughs> To help people who are struggling in the COVID epidemic and stuck at home to have things kind of more fun and switch it up. So we're encouraging people to get creative sexually. So definitely Instagram, uh, Foreplay Radio. You know, for
1: you, it's going to be where right now, like, your couples are in an ideal situation of being able to work on, if they can, like, go have sex more. You're at home. You don't have anywhere else to go. Like, put the kids somewhere have sex. But on the on the other side of this, I'm sure you're going to see a bunch of couples who are like, "Oh, we got to talk. We were stuck in quarantine together. <laughs> we don't even know what all of
0: our problems are, but they have all come to the surface." That's right. That's right. This is a really unique yeah. season yeah. in the world. And then a difficult season as we're kind of cooped up with the one we mm-hmm. love, right? You know, we long for that time to have time together. And suddenly we're thrown together 24 seven and people are about to kill each other. But, <laughs> That's true. but you're right. It could be used to advantage sexually. And I would say that our problems that we avoid by going to work or taking care of the children mm-hmm. or whatever uh, are now going to come mm-hmm. to the fore.
1: So true. Well, Dr. Lori, thank you so much. I love talking to you, love spending time with you and just so appreciate your time.
0: Oh, thank you so much. This was, has been fun, and I'm so glad you're doing this.
1: Here are my key pies takeaways from today's episode with Dr. Lori Watson. First of all, realize that the way that you see yourself and feel about yourself is more than skin deep. Your past, your experiences, and your circumstances are probably affecting how you are connecting, not only with your partner, but even how you connect with yourself, which leads to point number two, as Dr. Watson mentioned, there are emotional pursuers and emotional distancers, and there's also sexual pursuers and sexual distancers, and it's helpful and healthy to know where you fall on both of these scales are you an emotional pursuer and maybe your partner is an emotional distancer? That might be a key to realizing some of the issues that are going on. And then when you add sex on top of that, sexual pursuers and sexual distancers or two completely sexual distancers, then you can start to see how some of these problems happen. Learn what you need by identifying where you fall. And then number three is learn how to speak your partner's language. Instead of trying to get them to to succumb to what you are, focus on them. If your partner is a sexual distancer, they don't feel comfortable with themselves or the act of sex or getting into it and it typically causes a fight and you're a sexual pursuer, then be mindful of that. Instead of trying to get them to always want to be in that pursuer mindset, so to say, Be mindful of what their needs are. You want to get to the point where you can have an open conversation because for you to feel sexy and healthy in your own body, that also, especially in a committed marriage relationship means that you need to have a great relationship with your spouse. And that takes those two parts, working on our aspect of it, but also identifying where our spouse is, having conversations with them, and getting to the point where we have a healthy sex life together, because that's just going to make everyone happy all the way around. Those are the key pies takeaways from today's episode. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well.